are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Man, well, good morning. It's good to see you. I hope you're doing well. It's been a couple weeks. Uh, I've been gone, still getting over some stuff, um, but we'll make it through together. If you have a Bible, we turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Passage I just read is where we're going to spend our time this morning, among other passages, but that's going to be our anchor text this morning. And as you're turning there, let me just kind of kick us off this way. It is no secret that we live in a world and a culture that may be more divided than it ever has been. Okay, and one of the things, perhaps, that divides our culture more than anything else is when is the appropriate time to begin celebrating Christmas. Uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, when can you start listening to Christmas music? When can you start to decorate, watch movies, that kind of thing? So for some people, it's um, your purists, right? And it has to be December for you to start. December 1st is the starting point. For some of you, it's the day after Thanksgiving, green light. And then for others of you, you start after Labor Day, and that's okay. No one's judging you. You can do you. Um, but... I showed my cards on this a couple weeks ago. I'm, I'm just a firm after Thanksgiving guy. I don't need to wait till December 1st. But I, in full transparency, I did want to share with you that we put our tree up before Thanksgiving this year. We broke a rule. Wow, full on cheering. Uh, well, before you get excited, it wasn't because I wanted to, okay? I really, it felt weird doing it. Um, it was like 77 degrees that day too, which was awesome. But um, no, we were going out of town for Thanksgiving, and my wife wanted to come home to Christmas decorations, so I obliged, right, like a good husband. Uh, but let's just do this for fun. I want you to raise your hand for me if you have already watched at least one Christmas movie. Okay, most of us, all right? And I'm, I don't mean just the classics, okay? I'm talking Hallmark, whatever you like. Like, you can just, if you've watched one, um, raise your hand if your home or your apartment, wherever you live, is at least partially decorated for Christmas, all right, about the same amount of people, okay? So we, what we see here is we have Christmas people and we have non-Christmas people. That's what's going on here. Our house is about 80% decorated. I uh, got out there yesterday afternoon, was putting lights on the house and stuff, and then went back in and went to bed in my feverish state, right? Uh, just because apparently it's too much for me to climb up and down a ladder to put lights on at this point. My body is just wasting away as we speak, but... Um, I don't think the Christmas villages are going to make it up this year, right? There's too many fine parts, right? We can put the big things up, the tree's done, stock, the stockings are hung by the chimney with care and all that stuff. But anyways, let's ramp this up a bit. Raise your hand if you're not just decorated, but you have one gift, at least one gift, purchased, but not just purchased, wrapped and under the tree. Less of us. Look around, judge those people, okay? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Good for you. No, it's the, it's the danger zone right now. It's December 10th, right? So it, for people like me, you go, I got plenty of time. But it's also right there on the, before you wake up and you go, oh, shoot, and I'm at food line at Christmas Eve trying to buy my wife a gift, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, here, here's why I mention all that. Um, if, you pay, if you pay attention to our culture in this time of year, if you look around, the message of Christmas that we hear over and over and over again is get your hopes up. The message of Christmas is get your hopes up, that, that it's the most wonderful time of the year, and so uh, it's all going to work out in the end, right? It's, it's in songs and ads and movies. It's everywhere you look. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, right? So get your hopes up. The five and ten, whatever that is, is glistening once again. There's toys in every store, but the prettiest sight to see is the holly that will be where? On your own front door, right? Here's the problem with that. It's not that I don't like that song. I do. I've actually danced with both of my daughters in our kitchen this week to that song, okay? I like the song. 
The problem with that is sometimes things don't work out in the end. Sometimes things get tight financially and the toys in the store are just a reminder that you can't afford them, right? Sometimes the holly on your front door is not your favorite thing because you know the relational tension that exists behind the door when it opens. Uh, and, and this isn't the message being sold to us at Christmas. It's always get your hopes up. It's the most wonderful time of year. It's gonna work out in the end. You've seen those Publix commercials? Man, those things will bring a tear to the eye. They give you the warm and fuzzies, right? They make you wanna bake something. Um, but what's the message? You shop at Publix and this Christmas dinner will be everything you hope for and more. And, and, and sometimes that's true. No matter, but sometimes no matter how great the food is, somebody in your family is, is gonna make that comment or they're gonna bring up that topic Right? Or sometimes, no matter how good the food is, Christmas dinner's not gonna be what you always wish it would be because this is your first Christmas without that particular family member or, or whatever. The point is the message we consistently hear around this time of year is get your hopes up, it's all gonna work out in the end and the reality is it's not always the case. Sometimes you open all the presents and there's not conveniently one more hiding behind the Christmas tree and oh, by the way, it just so happens to be the Red Rider BB gun that you wanted, right? <laughs> And I could keep going, but I think you get my point. The message we hear all around us is gonna work out, whether we realize it or not, we know this isn't true. At least not the way that it's sold to us, right? I read an article this week, I wanna share part of it with you. It's called Seasonal Affective Disorders, Holiday Anxiety and the Holiday Blues. And some of you are like, wow, Merry Christmas to you too, Glenn. <laughs> it gets better, I promise, stick with me here. It says, shorter daylight, colder temperatures in the beginning of fall and winter this person clearly wasn't from Savannah, can trigger feelings of low mood, lack of motivation, loss of interest, and fatigue. Coupled with the holidays, individuals can feel even more stressed out and overworked and have a tendency to sleep less and eat more, resulting in unwanting, unwanted weight gain. Social gatherings, the financial burden of buying gifts, and the pressure to feel festive when in reality you're depressed can trigger holiday anxiety. According to studies, approximately 40% of adults are riddled with social anxiety around the holidays and many turn to food and alcohol as coping mechanisms, which can also result in a downward spiral. Or what about those individuals who love the holidays but experience sadness and depression-like symptoms once the holidays are over? How many Christmas songs you know sound like that? Some of you, again, are like, whoa, why'd we come here today? Don't get me wrong, I love this time of year. Right? I really do. I already told you I've been dancing in the kitchen with my daughters. Uh, we have, as far as I know, five Christmas trees in my house. Okay? And it's not that big of a house. And, and there may be more when I get home. I don't know. They multiply. Okay? <laughs> the point is not don't get your hopes up. The point is not set your expectations real low this Christmas so that you won't be disappointed again this year. The point is that life just has a way of stacking up on us. And all year long, this is true, but particularly in this season, we are presented with these false hopes. We are presented with false hopes. And there's a difference between worldly hope and biblical hope, right? Worldly hope is, I hope that the, my boss or he sees what, how much of a value I add I am to this company and he gives me a big end of the year bonus or end of the year raise. That's not just the jelly of the month club, right? Although that is the gift that keeps on giving all year long. Um, worldly hope is I hope that he will finally propose this Christmas. It's, it's I hope that no one gets angry and storms away from the Christmas table, right, from dinner. Worldly hope is me last Saturday night, once again in a feverish state, laying there, trying to watch the Bulldogs, 
Um, and then once we lost, worldly hope was me hoping that somehow they would still make the college football playoff, right? The thing about worldly hope is that it's only based on possibility. And what happens when what we hope for doesn't work out the way we want, we respond typically in one of two ways, either like me, you are agitated at best, people come over, there's this all in your space, just things aren't working out the way you want to, you're just irritable. You're just agitated at best or you get angry at worst or like the article I read, uh, you get anxious. That's how we respond. So the answer, church, isn't set your expectations low and hedge your bets so to self-protect and keep from being let down again this Christmas. The answer is get your hopes up, but make sure that you have placed your hope in the right space. Because where worldly hope is rooted in possibility, biblical hope is rooted in promise. And church, our hope is in a God whose promises cannot fail. And so all that, by way of introduction, this morning we're starting an Advent series. Advent started last week, but we're starting our series this week, um, uh, because I got sick. But if you don't know, Advent is from a Latin word that means coming or arrival. And the season of Advent lasts four weeks, traditionally the four Sundays that led us up to Christmas. This year is unique in that the fourth Sunday is Christmas Eve, and so we're kind of coinciding those two things. But each week, Advent has a theme Hope, peace, joy, and love, it's what these candles down here in front of me symbolize. And the point of Advent is that we would center our hearts, not on worldly hope, but on the hope that will not fail us, regardless of how our Christmas goes this year. And so in Advent, we look back to Jesus' first coming, and we look ahead to the promise that he will come again, and in between, we center ourselves in the promise that he has given us in Matthew 28, that he is with us Always, And so just a disclaimer, this is not going to be a sermon series about something that you need to do. If you've come to this church in, this, in Advent hoping that this would be, you know, three ways to have your best Christmas yet, you're going to be sorely disappointed. I don't think that we need another thing to add to our list this Christmas. You know, shopping and, you know, cooking and decorating and wrapping and parties and cleaning and hosting and traveling and, oh, by the way, make some time for Jesus this year. I don't think we need one more thing to add to our list. My prayer for you is, is not that you would be compelled by this sermon or this series to, uh, to make a little more space for Jesus or to move him up on your list of priorities this Christmas. My prayer is that Jesus would become the lens by which we make our lists. You know what I mean by that? That, that he and he alone would become the lens by which we see everything and everyone. And so again, this will not be about what you need to do, what I need to do, it'll be about what, who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And so the way that we're gonna do this is for the next three weeks, the rest of the time this morning and two more weeks leading up to Christmas, we are gonna consider together the four names that we just read in Isaiah 9, verse six, that Isaiah prophesies about the Lord Jesus. Again, we read it earlier, but I want you to see it here. Isaiah 9, verse six, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this morning, we're gonna consider Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, what it means that that is true about Jesus. This title is given to him and how that should shape the way that we spend Christmas. Um, we do need a little bit of context to understand what's going on here. This prophecy here in Isaiah 9 was given to the people of Israel, the people of God, over 700 years before Jesus was born. And in Isaiah's day, the Assyrian army 
was threatening the people of God. So if you don't know anything about Middle Eastern geography, Assyria was to the north of Israel. And if you're familiar, familiar rather with the book of Jonah, we preached to it earlier this year. Jonah, God asked Jonah to go where? To Nineveh. And Nineveh was actually the capital city for the Assyrian Empire. And so if you know the story, Jonah doesn't want to go, actually doesn't go, and then through some extenuating circumstances, uh, God gets him there. He, and God uses Jonah and his message to kind of hold off the Assyrians for a while, but ultimately because of their disobedience, God allows Assyria to, uh, to capture the northern kingdom of Israel and to take them into captivity. You could read about this in 2 Kings 17. But when this happened, it brought what Isaiah calls a darkness on the land. When Israel is taken captive by the Assyrian Empire, look at verse 22 of chapter 8 in Isaiah. This is him talking about this, this season for the people of God. They will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. I think it's difficult to wrap our minds around what this would have been like, but if you think with me for a moment about what this experience for God's covenant people would have been like, the Assyrians had come in and taken military and political and social control over Israel, and many of their leaders had been deported to other areas. They, they, some of them had become, been taken as slaves. All of them were oppressed and marginalized in their defeat, and Isaiah calls it anguish and darkness. Darkness because of their slavery and anguish because of their oppression. And yet, a couple verses before this, he says in verse 17, look with me, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. So he says, he's, the, the Lord is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. This is not saying that God is hiding from his people. What it's saying is that the people of God in their experience of following him and trying to be faithful to him, when they look to him, it's as if he's hiding their face, his face from them. That they can't see, they can't understand how their present reality of being taken under Assyrian captivity, they can't understand how that can be consistent with being God's covenant people and, and, and consistent with his promises. And, and I know you've been there. I know you've been to that spot. Maybe some of you are there now where your, your present reality, your circumstances, the pain of your life as you look around, you say, this doesn't make sense. Why am I experiencing this if God is good, if God loves me, if God is in control? All these thoughts swirl in our head. We've been there in church. This is why we need a hope that is built on things more than probability. Because what happens when you get to that spot in your life where the odds are not very good? You despair. You give up, you walk away. But Isaiah says, I can't see what God's doing right now as if the Lord is hiding his face from Jacob, from the people of God, and yet, what does he say? But I will hope in God. I will hope in God. This word hope here in Hebrew, other translations are to wait eagerly. But I will wait, e I can't see his face, but I will wait eagerly for God. Meaning, rather than the difficulty of their present circumstances causing him to lose hope, it, it actually solidifies his resolve, all right? So I was laying uh, in bed last night. I got in bed at 5.30 p.m. yesterday, okay? Um, just hoping that I could somehow do what I'm doing now three times, okay? 
And so uh, between my fever, fever chills, fever chills, there wasn't a lot of sleep being had for a little while. So I turned on some Big 12 basketball. That's about the, the response I expected, okay? <laughs> it was actually a good game. It was Kansas versus Missouri. Missouri went out to a big lead in the first half, and then the second half, Kansas came back and they just took the game the rest of the way. Now, I watch this game, especially at the end of basketball games, because you're hoping for a good finish, right? You're hoping for a comeback. Now, this whole time, they got it with single digits, and they get it back 10 or 12, and Kansas is winning. And I'm just hoping that they would win. Now, imagine with me if, while that was happening, I was armed with the information that somehow Missouri did come back and win that game. How would that change my experience? Now, the, the further that they would get down in that game, as the clock was tw- uh, getting closer to zero, the, the more point spread they had to make up, I would be more intrigued. Because I'm one, I'd be thinking, like, how are they gonna do this? Who's gonna be the hero? I know that they somehow win this game, but who's gonna be the hero? Who's gonna make the final shot? Who's gonna do these things? And that, I think, is what's happening in Isaiah. He goes, I can't see God's face. I can't understand how he's doing these things, but I am sure that we will be victorious in the end. How's he gonna do it? That, that's what's happening here, right? He says, I will hope in God because biblical hope is not based on possibility, it's based on promise. And not just any promise, but a promise that was as old as Genesis 3, where the, whereas the curse of sin is ringing, ringing out. Genesis 3, verse 15, God says to the serpent, there's one that's gonna come and you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. A promise as old as given to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would be the father of many nations, that somehow the entire earth will be blessed through his family. A promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7. This will be on the screen. God says this to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, meaning after you pass, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so despite the anguish and the gloom of their current circumstances, Israel was waiting on a promise. So they didn't give up hope because their hope isn't based on probability or maybe what's the chances that they somehow win this game. Their hope is built on promise that one day a deliverer would come and he would be a whole earth blessing, head of the serpent crushing deliverer for God's people. Isaiah says in chapter seven, verse 14, here's how you'll know when he has come. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, in these days for Israel, there was no probability. There was no possibility that they would somehow win, but there was hope because their hope is built on promise. And God had given them his word that he would bring a deliverer. And Isaiah is picking up on this theme and he says this in verse one. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. He says for the people of God whose hope is built on promise and not on probability, they can be confident that one day their gloom will be glory. One day your gloom will be glory. And did you notice the way he talks about this? He talks about their their captivity, their current painful circumstance. He talks about it in the past tense. He calls it the former time, like it's already gone. He says in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. 
you don't know what that is, the, that's two of the northern tribes of Israel. There should be a map. Um, two of the northern tribes of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali up there at the top, because again, Assyria was to the north. And so as they came into captivity, that's the, the area, the region that he's referencing that was taken either first or completely. Um, and remember those two names, Zebulun and Naphtali. We're gonna come back to that in a second. And Isaiah refers to their captivity, their slavery as the former time. And he says it as a past tense, even though this is their present reality, because biblical hope is so certain that even though it hasn't happened yet, it's as if it already has. He says the former time. The former time, right? Look at verse one again. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. So for the sake of time, I won't walk through the rest of those verses because I want to get us to verse six, but the point is that their defeat will soon be victory. Again, their gloom will turn to glory. And so the question that Israel would have when hearing this is how will this come, right? We see the clock ticking down. We see the odds aren't very good, but we know that you've given us this promise that we will be victorious. We will win this game. And so he prophesies there will be no, uh, your gloom will turn to glory, and so they're leaning in, they're on the edge of their seat and they're wondering, how will this come? Who will be our savior? And then look at this in verse six, how he answers that question. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. What's his answer to how their salvation would be secured? A baby. He says a child will come. And so from our vantage point, we know who he's talking about, right? Who's he talking about? Who's he talking about? Jesus, right. So on this side of the cross, we, we know what he's talking about, but think for a minute about what this would have been like for them. They're in Assyrian captivity, slaves, oppressed, marginalized. Isaiah prophesies there will be no gloom for her who's in anguish. The northern part of Israel that was captured, he has made glorious, and they're leaning in and they're waiting. How is this going to be? And they hear, for to us a child was born. This would be like, if my son, I have four kids, eight, or sorry, seven, five, three, and one, boy, boy, girl, girl, girl. If my oldest son came to me and said, Dad, I need help. I'm being bullied at school. This is hypothetical, okay? We love our school. But um, not that it couldn't happen there, it could. But he's not being bullied. That's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> Foggy up here, I'm telling you, all right? So if he came to me and he said, Dad, I need some help. I'm being bullied at school. But, and I say, well, who is it? right? How are we going to take care of this? And if it wasn't a classmate or even an older classmate, what if it was a teacher or an administrator? Like an adult, someone who he has no, no shot of defending himself on his own. So he comes to me as his father to protect him and to, to defend him. And, and what if I said, son, don't worry. Tomorrow, not I'm going to go with you and we'll take care of this. Tomorrow, I want you to take your little sister with you. And he's like, Josie? She's three. What can she do? She can't help me. Like, I don't need her. And I go, no, 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 not Josie. I mean Vivi. He's like, she can't even walk yet. Like, what is she going to do? That's what this would have been like. They, they would hear this prophecy for, for to you, a child has been born. And they would think, what? We don't need a child. We need an army. Have you seen our enemy? We need a bigger bully and not a baby. And yet Isaiah says that it is the birth of this child that would one day initiate the light that would shine for this people who walk in darkness. So if you have your Bible open, I want you to see this. It'll be on the screen, but I'd rather you turn there. Matthew chapter four, hold your finger in Isaiah nine, because we're gonna come back to that. 
Matthew chapter four, I'll give you a second. I want you to see this in your hands. Wait on a few more pages there. Matthew four, I'm gonna start in verse 12. Now when he, this is Jesus, heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What Matthew just did there is he just explicitly confirmed that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter nine. And meaning the way that darkness will be displaced, the way that light will shine, the way that gloom for the people of God then and today will be replaced with glory is to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And so in the first half of Isaiah nine verse six, Isaiah gives us three things that he tells us who Jesus is that should shape our understanding of, of what we celebrate at Christmas. Three things, his humanity, his deity, and his might, or his power. He says, for to us a child is born. This is about Jesus' humanity. This is the manger, this is Bethlehem, this is Christmas, this is the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It shows us that Jesus is fully human, that the eternal second person of the Trinity, he came to inhabit the womb of a teenage girl in the first century. It shows us that Jesus is like us, but we also see that he is unlike us because Isaiah says to us, a son is given. This is about his deity. You notice the difference in the language there. For to us, a child is born, but to us, the son is not born. The son is given because the son has always been and will always be. This is about his deity. Jesus never became God. He's always been God, even pre-Bethlehem. We're gonna sing this in a bit, but one of my favorite Christmas songs, Hark the Herald, there's a verse that says, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. Pleased as men with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That God is with us, that he is fully man and fully God. And then he says the third thing, that the government will be upon his shoulder. This is about his might, this is about his power, about his capacity, his ability to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, because he's sovereign over every square inch of creation. And when Isaiah says this, clearly he, he has in view the manger, and clearly he has in view the cross, but, but he has to be looking past that, and here's why. This word translated government here, it means rule or dominion. And in the ancient world, government or rule or dominion was considered to be the burden of the king. That, that that weight, that responsibility would rest on his shoulders as his responsibility to bear. So what Isaiah is talking about is the future rule and reign of King Jesus. This is Advent. This is Jesus came as a baby, not to rule and reign as king, although that is who he is. He came as a savior to redeem a people for himself, to make a way for us to be brought back into right relationship with God. And Advent, as we look back at that and we look ahead at the promise that he will come again, and church, we live in the already but not yet. Jesus has come, but he has not yet come again. And we believe because the Bible teaches 
that right now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father where he waits for the appointed day and the appointed time to return and make all things new, to restore everything that sin has broken. And maybe you're looking at your watch right now and you're like, well, when are we gonna get to the wonderful counselor, mighty God part? Well, this is what makes him the wonderful counselor, that Jesus is fully man, that he's fully God, that he is the one who sits in sovereign control over every square inch of creation. He's the wonderful counselor because since he's fully man, he actually understands what we're going through. Jesus is not some distant, detached, just up in the clouds sort of deity, right? He understands. It means that he knows and he can identify with us in what we're going through. So if, if you need help with your car, you wanna fix something with your car, I'm probably not your guy, all right? If your battery's dead, I could probably help with that. I could jump it off. I could even take it out, take it down to advanced auto parts, bring it back, stick it in there. I could check the oil in your car. I probably couldn't even change it. I could figure it out, YouTube, it's a powerful tool, you know? But if, if you got a real problem with your car, you need to take it to someone who understands. Take it to a mechanic. If you have a problem with your computer, I am definitely not your guy, okay? Take it to an IT person. Take it to someone who understands. What the Bible is saying to us about the Lord Jesus is that he understands. He's not detached. He understands our experience. I want you to hear this from Hebrews chapter four. You're like, wait, we just spent 16 weeks in Hebrews. I know. We're going back. Starting over in the spring. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Hebrews four, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Church, Jesus is the wonderful counselor because he understands the human experience, but not only does he understand, since he is fully God, he knows what we actually need. Now, this is why the fulfillment of this promise to Israel in Assyrian captivity, it was not a bigger bully, but rather a baby. Because God is delivering his people from a greater enemy than Assyria, right? The victory that Jesus came to give us, you and me, is much bigger than any present darkness that you or I might be walking through. That's why he came a baby, not a bigger bully. Look at, or listen to this, Colossians 1, should be on the screen. He says, and so, from the day we heard of your faith, that you've trusted Christ, that Jesus is Lord, that he's your savior, that you've put your eggs all into that basket, since we've heard that, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, meaning um, that even though you can't see it and you can't understand and your present circumstances are just like, it's impossible to understand how that could coincide with the promise of God in your life. He says, I'm praying that you be filled with the knowledge of his will to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, not to give up on him, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Church, that is how we should live in between the two advents, trusting God, living our lives worthy of the gospel, fully pleasing to him, right, increasing and growing, and then he says this. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I don't have time for this, but there is a sermon series worth of stuff in that, those couple of verses. That God the Father, in his providence, sent the Son, what we celebrated Advent, 
to qualify you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has done that work for you. He has qualified you. He has transferred you, not out from underneath Assyrian captivity or, or whatever pain that you're walking through, but out from underneath the weight of sin and death. Jesus is a wonderful counselor because he's fully man, which means he understands our problem. He's fully God, which means he knows what we need and because he's mighty, which shows us that not only does he understand and know, he can do something about it. He can do something about it because he is mighty God. Uh, other places in the scripture, this phrase, this Hebrew mighty God is translated warrior. It's a pretty fascinating word study. If you have time, you should do that. But what this shows us clearly, if, if, if he says that Jesus is mighty, that he's warrior, it shows us clearly that what he has in view is yes, the manger, yes, the cross, but, uh, but even far past that. He's clearly looking at his first advent, but he's, he's looking um, at the certainty of the second coming of Jesus because no one ever calls a baby a warrior king, right? If Jesus is mighty God, if he's the warrior, then he's looking past the manger, past the cross to the certainty of the second coming of Jesus where Revelation says that Jesus will come again, only this time not as a baby. He will come as a warrior king. And Isaiah says in chapter nine, verse seven, at the very end of that verse, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Not only does he understand, does he know what we need, but he can and he will do something about it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Listen to this, 1 Peter 1. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again from that to this, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Church, our hope is not based on probability. It is based on promise. Meaning just as Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus was born that a light would shine in the darkness, we are to be that sure about our hope in the, in the certainty of the second coming of the Lord Jesus that one day one would come to finally and forever crush the head of the serpent. And so when we celebrate Christmas, the picture in our minds shouldn't just be the manger. When we celebrate Christmas, biblically, the picture in our mind shouldn't just be Ricky Bobby's seven pound baby Jesus on Mary's lap, right? Yes, the manger, Yes, the cross, but the certainty of the second coming of warrior King Jesus where he will finally and forever crush the head of the serpent. This is what allows us not to be driven to despair when life isn't all that we hoped it to be, when, when the presents aren't what we want them to be, when dinner isn't what we hope it to be. This is what allows us not to be driven to, to despair because our hope is built on and our peace comes from King Jesus enthroned victoriously forever. Remember I said earlier the word hope in Isaiah 8 is often translated to wait eagerly. Listen to this, Hebrews 9. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Those who hope in him. This is the same idea that we saw in Isaiah 8, right? That I don't understand what God is doing. The, the, the pain of my present circumstances doesn't seem to add up. It seems like he's hidden his face from me, but I will hope in him. I will wait eagerly 
for him. That's who Jesus is. And here's the application. I told you this wouldn't be a sermon or a series about what we need to do. It's about who Jesus is. I kind of lied to you because there is one thing that we have to do in response to this is we have to identify our misplaced hopes. All around us, cultural Christian, Christmas rather, there's this message of get your hopes up because it's gonna work out in the end. Now that's true, but they're talking about something different than what the scriptures are talking about. It will work out in the end because Jesus will reign and rule victoriously forever, but that's not what they have in view. So we have to identify our misplaced hopes. Here's the question, where is your hope? Is it based on probability or on the promise of God? And we listen to the words of the wonderful counselor, Matthew 4, we read it earlier, where he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That word repent, it feels heavy, it feels like, nah, that's not Christmas, you shouldn't say that. It, it, it's, it is heavy, it, but actually the heaviness comes when we don't repent. But the word means to change or to, or to turn. And really what Jesus is doing there is it's an invitation not a warning, it's an invitation to, to remove our hope from what will always disappoint us and to pour it all in on Jesus who will never leave us or forsake us. So church, where's your hope? You may be in a season where you can't see what God is doing right now, where you don't understand how this could possibly work out for your good, but you can be sure of this, that our hope isn't based on possibility, it's based on the promises of God, and our God always keeps his promises. Jesus says, come, and he will come again. Let me pray for us, and then we're gonna sing and respond to that good news. Father, we thank you. we thankful for your grace and your mercy. I'm grateful that every day we wake up, every time we find the strength to get ourselves to this room, the truth of the matter is we are undeserving of your love and mercy and yet we can be confident that we have it in full because it isn't based on what we do but based on what Christ has done. Help us, God, to identify the misplaced hopes in our lives, the things, the people that we think are gonna make our lives what we want it to be. Help us to look forward with hope, trusting that you keep your promise. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and respond.